This is an Our Savior Evangelical Free Church podcast. To learn more, visit osefc.org. Well, we are going to get into the preaching of God's Word now, and so if you have your Bible with you, open it to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1 is where we will start this morning. We're going to be in three different chapters, pieces of them, and I've really only got time to read bits and pieces, Uh, so this will not be a straight verse-by-verse or line-by-line exposition. Really what I want to do is introduce you to the Gospels and introduce you to Jesus Christ this morning. This is a big day in this series of sermons, Equipped. We've been building toward it for a long time. Today we finally meet Jesus. He's been present, Jesus has, for every single bit of the Bible. He was specifically suggested all the way back in Genesis 3. We'll see this morning that he was present even at creation. We even learned part of his name in Exodus 3. But today, here he is. We meet the biblical Jesus in our walk through the Bible in our study of Bible principles, Bible reading principles. And so I want to ask the question, who is Jesus? Who is he according to the scriptures? And so let's pray together, ask for God's help. There is at times, uh, God, where we come to our Bible reading, we feel like we know all the answers Maybe we've read the stories before. Maybe we are familiar with them, just have heard them here and there. And that can sort of cloud our view of them. That could be for many of us who are Christians. When we ask, who is Jesus? Well, of course, we know who Jesus is. And so we, we might become a little bit dull or a little bit mute or a little bit subdued to the great testimony that is the birth of of the Messiah, the promised one of God who is God with us. And so, God, I pray that you would open ears and eyes, that you would enliven color this morning, that we wouldn't have a dull understanding of who Jesus is because it's become overly familiar to us. He's become overly familiar to us. But I pray that we would experience him fresh this morning. And God, would you help us to understand the great things that you've laid out. What a promise and what a deliverance we have before us this morning. It's in the beautiful name, matchless name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. Well, have you ever heard somebody make a kind of dichotomy between Jesus and Christianity? I know many people who who do this. They try to do this. They say, I admire, even embrace, some of the teachings of Jesus, but they adamantly oppose Christianity, the Christian faith, especially sometimes the Christian church. They would say things like, well, I believe that Jesus came to promote love and an ethic of peace, but he never wanted dogmatic followers. This is the idea that Jesus has been, you know, misunderstood or that he's been misinterpreted or misrepresented. And so I want to ask again this morning, who is Jesus? Not according to culture, not according to ritual, 
But as we're introduced to him in the Bible, and we'll spend a few more weeks talking about who Jesus is and what he did, but as we're introduced to Jesus at the beginning of the Gospels, who is he? And that is the question at the heart of all four of the biblical Gospels. These Gospels, if you don't know what that word is, they're stories of Jesus' life and work. If you remember a little while ago, we talked about genre, the genre that different books of the Bible are written in. Gospels would be their own category. They're a different kind of a book. The word gospel literally means good news, and that's what gospels do, is they're books that bring good news. They're a little part biography, a little part proclamation, Think a newspaper, but not ones that fill the headlines with fear, with joy. At the end of the Gospel of John, it says that there are so many things that Jesus did that John, the writer of that Gospel and a close friend of Jesus, said he he couldn't have put them all in the book for it probably would have taken up all the pages of all the books in the world. And so the implication is that he focused on certain things. He told certain events and he focused in on certain parts of the life of Jesus for a particular purpose. And I like biographies. I usually have one going. A good biography, a thorough, a critical biography can be a thousand pages, multi-volume. Whereas the gospels, Luke is the longest gospel and you could probably read it in two or two and a half hours. So these are not exhaustive biographies of Jesus. He did much more than this. These are targeted, focused accounts of his life meant to herald the good news. The longest gospel, Luke, is where we'll be a little bit this morning, but I want to start in the gospel of Matthew, and I want to start where the gospels start. Matthew starts with a genealogy, but the gospels don't start in a vacuum. Hold up your Bible and just see where you're at if you're in the gospel of Matthew. We're about three quarters of the way through the scriptures, two-thirds, three-quarters, something like that, through the scriptures, and one of the things that the gospels all do right away at the beginning is while Jesus is magnificent, while his breaking onto the scene is headline-grabbing, they want to make sure that we know that Jesus isn't something new. In fact, he's something very, very old. John, again in his gospel, tells us that Jesus is not just a man, but he's the Son of God, who isn't just old or ancient, he's eternal. In other words, he's always been. That's the way that John's gospel starts. By the way, I chose not to do John's gospel with this because we go to John's gospel next week. Now, admittedly, it may not seem like the most exciting way to introduce Jesus the way that Matthew starts with a list of names. Jesus did many other things. He walked on water and he commanded weather. And he said that your sins could be forgiven, and he said that he was God in the flesh. And so maybe if you were a biographer, if you were a writer, if you wanted to grab your audience's attention, you might have started with the water thing. The walking on the water, the commanding of the storm. But Matthew decides to start here, and it's actually quite remarkable when you unpack this list of names, what you learn. 
In a minute, we're going to see how Luke, a different gospel, starts. It's a little bit different. It starts with the author telling us exactly why he's written, to give us an orderly account. In other words, Luke wrote so that we could have a type of book that could be read and verified, held up to scrutiny. Now, with these different ways of beginning the gospel, John begins with a magisterial opening of the everlasting God being enfleshed. And Luke begins with an orderly account. He wants it to be verified. And Matthew starts with a list of names. Mark starts with Jesus just kind of walking onto the scene. With these starting differently, I wanted to pair this with the Bible study skill or principle of learning to determine an intent of the author. We call this authorial intent. Why has a book of the Bible been written? Why has its author sat down to write this book of the Bible? And asking questions about authorial intent will greatly help your Bible reading because it will open up to you purpose and meaning and interpretation. It will help you to understand who the author was and the world of the author, the audience that the author wrote to. For one major thing, determining the intent of an author can help us stand back and look at the scriptures, look at the story of the Bible, and see the big things. One writer, Don Carson, said that when you don't do this, you tend to stand in front of a mountain range and not see the beauty and the majesty of a whole bunch of mountains, but you look at a little bit like a prospector and wonder if I dig in one spot, maybe I find a little gold. Gold is fine, but that's the way that some people approach their their Bible. They want to find a few nuggets here and there, but they fail to stand back and see the vast beauty of the Scriptures, like somebody who stands in front of a great mountain range. So this morning we want to look at why Matthew wrote his gospel, why a little bit Luke wrote his gospel, and we hope that in doing that we will ask this question, who is Jesus and why have the, Bible, have the Bible writers given him to us in the way that they have. Before we get into the gospel, let me just orient you in the timeline. It's important we do this. We're looking through a 13-week journey through the Bible. I want to tell you where we are. Now, when the gospels begin, there hasn't been biblical writing for about 400 years. Malachi is about the last thing we get in our Bible, 400 years before the New Testament. And where we left off, if you were here last week, We were in the prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah was still prophesying when Jerusalem was a a pretty good city, when the temple was still there and people were worshiping at it. And this was about 600 years before Matthew begins his gospel. And so let me just tell you what happens in the meantime. In the meantime, the nation of Israel is invaded by the Babylonians. The Babylonians come in, they tear down the city of Jerusalem, they loot the temple, they tear it down as well, And they take the people of Israel, many of them, and they deport them. They bring them into exile away from the city and they bring them to Babylon. It's kind of part of the foreign policy of the Babylonians. Well, after the Babylonians fall, the Persians rise up. They conquer the Babylonians. They have a different foreign policy. They allow some of the people who inhabited Jerusalem, a few generations pass, but they get to return to Jerusalem They rebuild the city a little bit, and they rebuild the temple. Now, the city is not like it once was, and the temple is a small, much smaller, much more humble version of the original temple. 
And so they live and they are under the, the leadership of the Persians there for a while. And then as nations do, another nation, uh, the Persians sort of fall and another nation rises, Rome. And the Roman Empire begins to conquer much of the known world. The northern part of Africa, most of Europe, and the, much of the area that we know today as the Middle East, especially the ancient Near East. And so we have now a people that lives in a city much more humbly than, one, than when they did, than, than they once did. They have for about 600 years lived under the rulership of another foreign nation. Their hope is dashed. They have been oppressed. And their best days are like a thousand years ago. A thousand years ago. Can you imagine that? Just think about how old America is. We have no idea what it's like to, be a thousand, to have your best days be a thousand years ago. And so here we are, Matthew 1.1. This is what Matthew writes into. It says, The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. That's a great way to begin a book if all you're going to use is a couple of names. Now, if you've been tracking with our series so far, you'll recognize that those names are two of the big three in the history of Israel. And so if you live in a Jewish community destroyed 600 years ago, and if you really haven't had a great kingdom to call your own for a thousand years since it was David who was king, and you have been hoping, your people have been promised for that thousand years that a king like David would sit on the throne you would take notice when somebody says there is one who has come who is like the son of David, who is the son of David, because you would have remembered God's promise to you that one of David's descendants would sit on the throne forever. And then there's a second name, Abraham. We know about Abraham from this series. He started the whole thing. Remember that God told him that his line would grow to become numerous and his people would bless the whole world. And so Abraham is the father of the Jewish people and David is their greatest king. When you have David and Abraham in the same sentence and an author says this is the story of a man who is their son, meaning from their lineage, you would get very, very excited. You will remember two at least of the three great promises, maybe probably two of the best that God had ever given to your people. And what follows is a list of names. Again, not that exciting until you consider who these names are and what they represent. Matthew 1-2. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. And if you kept reading, and you had read more of the Old Testament you would read the names, and you would know many of them, not all of them, but you would know many of them, except it wouldn't be the kind of names that you would expect after David and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Judah. You would actually conclude that this isn't the kind of list of names that comes in the lineage of a great hero. 
Instead, the list of names that follows contain people who committed incest, prostitute. One of them is a woman from another nation that was known so much for their sexual deviance that they weren't even allowed, permitted among God's people. Even David himself was an adulterer and a murderer. And continuing down the list, you would come after David to kings, but most of those kings are wicked. They didn't do their job. They were supposed to lead with equity and under the kingship of God, but instead they abused the people, became greedy, and led the nation astray toward idolatry. And then the list finishes with a few names from the Bible, and many of them others that were compiled uh, from stored records that Matthew would have access to, but none of the names are great. It's the list of names. Very few of them are great. And listen to how the section ends. Matthew 1.17. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Now this is actually Matthew's way of telling us this isn't or this is a selective list. This 14, 14, 14, this is a selective list. It's not meant to be exhaustive. He wrote it to make a few points. And let me just give you two things that stand out from the way that Matthew began his gospel. Like I said, this is a brief overview of the gospel, of the start of the gospel, so we don't have time for everything. But here's two things about the way that Matthew begins his gospel. First, this genealogy is meant to show us that Jesus is the descendant of royalty, specifically David. Verse 1 says he's the son of David. Then the genealogy is divided into three sections. The first section ends with David becoming king. The second section tells us what happened with David's kingly line, but still a lot about David. This is what happened after David, how the monarchy ended. And then the third section makes it clear that there still isn't a king on David's throne. In other words, the throne has been vacant for the entire third section. So you have, how did we get to David? What happened after David? And we still don't have anybody like David. That's what Matthew is telling us in this very selective list. Of all the things Matthew wants us to know, the clearest is that Jesus has come to be a new king, God's promised king over Israel. And then the second thing that Matthew wants us to know is that Jesus isn't just king over Israel in the line of David. Remember, he's a son of Abraham. That's where the gospel began, son of David, son of Abraham. The promise God made to David was that a member of David's family would rule over God's people. The promise God made to Abraham was that his people would grow numerous and they would bless all people. So this is who Jesus is at the beginning of Matthew's gospel. He has come to be king over God's people as promised, but he hasn't come only to be king over one small nation of one relatively small people group. He has come in fulfillment of the promise to bless all nations, all people. So this is a king for God's people, but he's one for the whole world. Isn't that amazing what you can get out of a list of names? That's all it is, a list of names. 
king of God's people, king over the whole world. Twice Matthew calls him Jesus Christ. It's not a last name. It's not a surname. Christ is a title that means Messiah or sent one or promised one. Jesus is the one God promised to be king. Not just in the Middle East, over a small bit on the, on the coast of the Mediterranean, but of all people everywhere to bless and to gather people under the reign of God. That's who Jesus is. He's the one who's come to rule and to gather and to save and to bless. I wish we had more time for Matthew. The rest of chapter 1 and chapter 2 are so good. They're, they're all about how the Messiah has long been foretold by God. Take a minute and read them this afternoon. Take 10, 15 minutes. Matthew helps us to not only connect the dots between Old Testament prophecy, but to unequivocally see how those dots don't just make up, but they center on Jesus. Now we're going to read a little bit from Luke, how Luke begins in just a minute. He gives us a a different account, much more from the perspective of Mary. But one last thing I want to do in Matthew before we move on from this gospel is Matthew gives us sort of the account from the point of view of Joseph. Joseph was Jesus' father here on earth. We only have time for just this one thing. So look at Matthew 1.24. Joseph has a dream, and while he's planning to break off his engagement to Mary because she's pregnant and he is sure that that he's, they've not slept together. In that dream, an angel reminds Joseph of a prophecy that God made 700 years before that through Isaiah, where he said that a virgin will give birth and the child will be called Emmanuel. Now, that, that doesn't mean a name. It's more of an explanation because the scripture tells us it means God with us. So Joseph begins, probably not fully, this would have been an awful lot to take in, but he begins to have this idea that he is going to be part of something truly special, unique. And so you get the sense that Joseph understands he's being called to a great responsibility. And so together, based on what Mary also hears from God in Luke 1, Joseph says and Mary says that the child will be named Jesus. And I don't want to move on from this in the Gospel of Matthew because the question is, who is Jesus? And we get one more answer even in his name. Jesus is the Greek form of the Hebrew name Joshua. It means God saves. Even more literally, specifically, Jesus, Joshua means Yahweh Saves. If you remember back in Exodus 3, the unique name when Moses says, Who am I to say that you have sent that I've been sent by? God shares his name with Moses, his special name. It's the Hebrew Yahweh, which literally means I am who I am, or just I am, or I be who I be. Now, this name Joshua, which we get Jesus from, is derived from from that same name. Yahweh leads to Joshua, which leads to Jesus. Remember, who is Jesus? Even in saying you shall call him Jesus, Matthew is telling us he's God. He is the same God who told Moses on the mountain 
on that hillside in Horeb. I am who I am. And this, again, is a new work of God. So I want to show you the way another gospel begins. I want to show you another way that, that the gospel said this is a new work of God. Flip over a couple of books in your Bible to the beginning of Luke's gospel, Luke 1. Luke has a genealogy as well, but he doesn't start there. That comes in chapter 3. He begins with a kind of prologue. It's a great place to talk really quickly about authorial intent. I want to do that for just a minute before I show you one other really, really cool thing from what Luke does from Mary's perspective in the gospel. So this is how Luke begins. This is how Luke introduces us to his gospel. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, this is much more stately, I think, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me, having followed all of these things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you've been taught. So when we're working with authorial intent, you need to know as much as you can about the author, the world of the author, and the purpose of the author's writing. We don't have all that here, but even in four verses, Luke gives us quite a bit. Two of the Gospels were written by close friends of Jesus, Matthew and John. And the other two Gospels, Mark and Luke, were written by trusted companions of those that Jesus appointed as apostles to lead and speak. So Mark is a close friend of Peter, the apostle Peter, and Luke was a companion of Paul, also probably known to Peter. So Luke wasn't with Jesus. Let's just be clear about that. But he had two things going for him. First, he had some great friendships, Paul and Peter among them, and he was a historian. Luke was extremely smart, and he applied a historical method of writing to his gospel. He also wrote Acts. It says in the way that the gospel began, I know other people have written about Jesus, but I think I have a contribution to make. He wrote for two reasons. First, he said, I want to give an orderly account. In other words, I want to apply a historical method for writing that you would use when you research any true events. And so Luke is going to conduct research and he's going to do interviews. He wants to get a lot of information. He wants to give a lot of, get a lot of accounts before he writes the book of Jesus. And he does that. And in the first paragraph, he also says the book is addressed to Theophilus. Uh, scholars have different ideas about who Theophilus was. My best guess is he was probably a wealthy benefactor. Um, as you can imagine, writing a book about Jesus wasn't going to be a lucrative financial opportunity, and so Luke probably had somebody named Theophilus, could be a pseudonym as well, that financed the project. Now, the Gospel of Luke is written so that you will know what was known among a smaller group of people about Jesus, and that news might go to a wider audience. So some people knew, there was a lot of people that knew that Jesus said he was the son of God, that he taught about the kingdom of heaven, that he said your sins could be forgiven in his name, that he died and rose again. All those things are true, but Luke says more people need to know. More people need to know that. And so I've set out to do a, a great work of history. I've, I've done research. I've looked at names. I've done interviews with first-hand accounts. And now I've written them down in a way that can be helpful for generations and generations and generations of Christians to know the truth of the good news of Jesus. That's why Luke writes his gospel. So when you're considering, just really quick, a minute on authorial intent. When you're reading books of the Bible, it's important for you to consider who wrote it, 
to whom it was written, and why it was written. Now, I, I've been giving out, let me just give two quick tips when it comes to authorial intent. One, I've been giving out almost every week, and it really does come up that often. One of the best ways to know all of these things is just to get yourself a really good, solid study Bible. In a study Bible, you're going to have an introduction to every single book of the Bible, and it's going to tell you things like who wrote it, or at least scholars' best guesses, or some of the people that may have written it. It's going to tell you the time period it was written in. It's going to tell you about the world and the audience. It's probably even going to tell you about some of the major themes and some of the, the, the things, that, the key points of the gospel. It will give you an outline of the writing. It will give you all of these things. So a study Bible is going to be a great resource for you. NIV study Bible is great. ESV is a good one. The NASB is really good. The CSB just came out with a new one, I think. I haven't looked at that, but I'm sure it's fine. So a study Bible. Now, another great tip for determining authorial intent, and this one's going to blow your mind. Ready? Read the first few verses of most of the books of the Bible. They will tell you a lot in the first few verses that you want to know. Now, in the New Testament, most of the books begin with who wrote them. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ to the church in Rome. That's just going to tell you, all right, good, we know it's Paul, we know it's going to the church in Rome. Uh, you learn very quickly that Paul has not met these Christians, so you know that he was just writing them a letter and they were friends that he hoped to come and visit. You learn that very quickly. Other books, you don't always get that. Uh, in the Old Testament, you can generally assume that the books were written to, deter, to drive people toward God and away from idolatry. The whole pattern of the Old Testament is people fall into idolatry and God writes books of the Bible so that they won't worship idols anymore. So start from that place in the Old Testament, but just read. Read the first few verses and you will normally get a good introduction to books of the Bible. Determining authorial intent. Really, really simple thing that will really help you to read your Bible well. Now I do want to take you to one final passage. It's unique to Luke and it's, it's so good. So look at Luke 1.30. Look at Luke 1, verse 30. So really quickly, uh, just like Joseph, or a lot like Joseph, uh, an angel is appearing to Mary, the mother of Jesus, and we're going to look at what he says to Mary and Mary's response. So this is verse 30. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God, and behold, you will, receive, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. And you shall call his name Jesus. Remember, that's where she got that. And he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and his kingdom. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And the Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? Now quick pause here. Do one more verse. Mary is a godly woman and just like we learned with Joseph, they had not slept together. She was saving herself for marriage, and she has yet become pregnant. Make no mistake about this. When we're asking who is Jesus, from the moment of his conception, he was miraculous. People ask today, how could this be? For we know all about the natural world and where babies come from. People have even begun asking, how important is the virgin birth to the Christian faith? And my answer to that, it is just about 
everything to the Christian faith. When we ask, who is Jesus, our answer must be, he is the very Son of God, born of a virgin through a miraculous conception. I once heard the the talk show host Larry King, who's a prominent atheist, asked if he could interview anybody in history, who would he like to interview, and without hesitation, he said, Jesus Christ. And the, the questioner said, well, what, what, what's the first question you would ask him? And he said, I would ask him if he was indeed virgin-born. For me, Larry King said, if that were true, it would change everything. And Larry King is right. The virgin birth of Jesus Christ changes everything. First, it's a miracle. Second, it means that Jesus truly is the Son of God. And third, it means that he is the start of a new kind of creation. Now, 2 Corinthians 5 says that if anybody is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away and the new has come. And you might say, well, isn't that a little dramatic? Are you just saying that for the flair of it, the Old has passed away, the new has come, new creation. I mean, really, how much different are you? You're still you, you still look like you, you still talk like you, you still sound like you. But I don't think it is. You are nothing less than a new creation when you come to Christ. And I don't think there's even enough drama captured there sometimes. In the birth of Jesus, we're meant to see a new kind of creation. It's only because he's a new kind of creation that we can be in him a new kind of creation of our own. Look at how the, the angel says that this will happen. How will this miracle happen? A little while farther down, it says that with God, nothing is impossible. But how? How will it happen? Verse 35. And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. The Holy Spirit will come upon Mary, and the power of God will overshadow her. This should remind us of not just the place that we started this series, but the place that the Bible starts. Where all good explanations of things begin in Genesis 1. Listen to what happens at the beginning. This is Genesis 1 2. Verse 2 of Genesis says, The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. This is just before God says, Let there be light, and there is this great explosion of things in creation. And in Genesis, we see that the Spirit brings the power of God. The Father commands. The Spirit brings the power. In Colossians, we learn that everything that is made is made through the Son. In Luke, just like in Genesis, God speaks. The angel comes to speak. But God speaks. The Spirit overshadows, hovers over Mary Mary with power. And the child who is born will be the Son of God. The Gospels answer this question over and over and over again. Who who is Jesus? They answer it hundreds of ways but they always answer it the same way. He is God the Son. We say he is the Son of God, but don't make the mistake that that title means he's like an earthly son, like we have have human sons, where they're a little bit different from maybe share some DNA with their dad. Sometimes we even think of 
sons is less than their dad just because they're younger and smaller, at least to start out. When the Bible says that Jesus is the Son of God, it's actually expressing a profound mystery. Not that Jesus is less than God, but that Jesus is part of the triune God, one being in three distinct persons. And so when we see the Father speaking and the Spirit hovering in power and the Son coming forth, creating, we see a new work of creation. Luke absolutely means for us to say this is a new kind of creation, but he means to absolutely call back to the first creation. And so we know that this one who is born, this one who is come, he is not just like God, but he is co-equal with God, co-glorious with God, co-worthy of worship. He is God. So if this is who Jesus is, what should our response be? How do we read the Gospels and read their answer? We could answer that a lot of different ways, but I think we should at least start where Mary starts. People have venerated Mary, Roman Catholic Church and Eastern Orthodox Church and other Orthodox-type churches, to uh, an unhealthy, an unbiblical degree. Mary was never meant to be worshipped. She never thought she deserved worship. But she is to be admired, and we can learn a lot from her. So let's just put ourselves in her place really quick. Mary was probably 14, 15, 16 years old. She's a teenager. She is pregnant in a society when you didn't even have time alone with the, the man or the woman that you were betrothed to. There were chaperones everywhere. It was considered a sin punishable by death to have premarital relations. And so here Mary is, scared, unsure, wondering if she will live. And look how she responds. Just jump down a couple verses to verse 38. Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Wow. Wow. What great faith from a teenager. From a teenager who had become pregnant and nobody believed her. Even Joseph didn't believe her at first. She wonders if she's going to be put to death. But she said, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And so what do, how do we respond when we say, who is Jesus? And he's the son of God, a new kind of creation. Anybody in him can be a new creation if they believe in his death and resurrection. I would just ask, are you the Lord's servant? Do you say, let it be to me, God, according to your word? That doesn't mean we always follow God perfectly. First John says, if anybody says they have no sin, they deceive themselves and the truth is not in them, of course you are going to fall short of the words of the Lord. But do you return in repentance and faith and say, I am the servant of the Lord? Let it be to me, again, according to your word. The Gospels answer this question in a hundred or thousand ways, and we could say there's so much 
to being a Christian, to being one who follows Jesus, who knows he's the Son of God. But I think we should start here just because that's what's in this gospel. To say I'm a servant of the Lord, you become a servant of the Lord by embracing his word, which says that you have sinned and fallen short of his glory, that you should repent, and when you do, Jesus will take your sin away from you and place upon you his righteousness, and you will be in the sight of God pure and saved for eternal life forever. Are you the Lord's servant? Is it in you according to his word? Let's pray. God, may we be your servants. May you do within us, around us, and through us according to your word. Amen. Amen.